please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Today is a little bit different. We're ending the year, and I thought it would be good to kind of give an end-of-year sermon for us. We will be back in John chapter 17 in um, next, week, next Sunday, and Lord willing, we'll finish John this year. Lord willing. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see how well that happens. Uh, let me pray for us before we open up God's Word. Uh, Father, I, we come together as children who know that you adopted us not based upon any status that we have, not based upon our gender, not based upon our morality, not based upon our birthplace. Lord, we ask now that you would comfort us with your joy, comfort us with your hope, because we know in a world that we live in, there's so much pain, sorrow, and sin. We have sinned this morning. We have sinned all this week. We have allowed idols to come in and replace the joy that we should have in Christ. We've allowed envy and anger. All of these we have confessed. And after confessing them, Lord, now we come desperately with our hands empty and opened and asking you to place in them your son that we may have hope, that we may have real joy and be encouraged and that our faith may be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. This has a, been a transition year for our church. We've, uh, we're in two different locations. We brought on new, uh, new leaders. New leaders are going out. We've grown exponentially. We have new deacons. So there's so much that's been changing over the last year. And as you bring in new people, uh, what's important is that we always remind ourselves, what is it we're doing? Uh, throughout the years, the concept of church has changed. As I scan this room, every single one of you have come from all different kinds of backgrounds, from not growing up in church at all, to the Church of Christ, a Baptist church, a Methodist church, um, Catholic. Some of you have come from all different kinds of backgrounds. And what we try and do here as elders is make sure that when you show up here on Sundays, you know what you're here for and why it is that you're here and what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And so what I like to do, as I did last year, is just to, to close the year reminding us what it is that next year should be about, what it is that we are going to focus on. The mission will not be any different last year than it is this year. It just will look different because there's new faces. There's new people involved. And so it changes only in that we have more of us involved. So this morning is about what is the mission of our church. Now, when a church loses sight of why God placed them here on this earth, and there's a reason why the moment you trust in Christ, you don't immediately vanish and leave. He's given us a mission. But the moment you lose sight of the mission, then you're going to lose sight of what it is that you're supposed to be doing from a week in and week out. The organization of the church has been around now for 2,000 years. Uh, the way in which we understand it, the people of God have always been around. That began with Abraham. But the constitution or the structure of the church, how the church functions, has been around now for 2,000 years. During this time, the church has seen many changes, disappointments, and setbacks. If you don't know much about church history, I'm going to give you the biggest flyby you've ever had in your life this morning. But there's a reason why. So the gospel was cluttered with the law during the Dark Ages. There's this long period where confusion happened. And of course, that's going to happen when you don't have the possibilities of printing. 
You don't have the possibilities of communicating and and putting things down so everyone can read. And of course, during that time, not everyone could read. And so what happened is the church has, um, during this period of the Dark Ages, the gospel became the message, the good news became put on the back burner. And what people would hear as they walked into church was how they must obey the church ordinances to better their chances of making it into good favor with God. There wasn't even a guaranteed. This is why purgatory existed or came into being. Then after this period, of course, there was a reaction to this theology later on. And you have what's called the Enlightenment. And during the Enlightenment period, the gospel was attacked because we became too smart to believe in biblical fairy tales anymore. The miracles of the Bible were simply metaphors to moral truths. They did not actually take place because that would defy the nature of law. And they did not want to feel as if they were stupid or ignorant compared to the world. So Jesus was... Technically born, but not necessarily born of a virgin. He was actually, he didn't actually walk on water. There were some explanations for how that took place. But it was used as an illustration of why you could trust his teaching. He actually never really fully died, allowing him to come back as more of like a metaphor of a dead man in the the figure of speech. Of course, this began to not only plague the church, but cause many to doubt their Bible and doubt faith. The Bible, more importantly, the gospel came under attack because humanity thought themselves more intelligent than their creator, which we just read 1 Corinthians and the danger of that. Well, not long after this was what we call the revivalist movement. So there is a response. And you'll notice that Christianity is just one response to the next. They're always responding. So in the dark ages, uh, people were not living the best. There was a lot of a lot of laws being broken. And so how do they take care of that? Put fear on people. It's fear-based morality. Well, of course, that doesn't work is when you have the Enlightenment. And then, of course, Enlightenment created a lot of dead orthodoxy and also just a lot of dead theology. So revivalism, the revivalist movement took place. And this was really their call to cultural repentance. So you would hear sermons like, or you would hear sermons against drinking alcohol and rock music, dancing, smoking, cussing, immodesty, sexuality became the topics of every sermon. Not necessarily opening up God's word, reading God's word and allowing God's word to change us. It was stop doing these things. And some of them, they're not even unbiblical, but they made it so. So their mission was to bring back a moral society that had been lost It was during this enlightenment that they feel like it was a loss. So we wanted to revive people's excitement about God. But their understanding about the excitement of God was these are the things that Christians don't do. It became a do not religion. Do not do this as a Christian. So in essence, the revivalist movement sought to change the outside of the person. And they believed if they could change the outside of the person, in turn, it would change the the inside of the person. And all you have to do is go to our jail system to understand that doesn't work. No matter how hard you get someone to act right, it will never help them be right because the Bible says what's within inside of a man is what causes him to be evil. 
So in course, in our culture and in the Christian culture and in the Christian churches, this created hypocrisy. People started to become fake because they heard, I have to be this way. I know I can't be this way, so I'll be fake and I'm going to judge others. Secrecy and bondage really is what ended up causing is bondage. And in the last 50 years, this was kind of at the turn of the century. In the last 50 years, there's been a new movement called the seeker movement. The church has become about the personal needs of those attending the church. So instead of looking at God's word and determining it is, what is it humanity needs? We took surveys from the culture and asked the culture, what is it that you want in church? And we then adjusted the church based upon your personal preferences. And the mission of the church became about really meeting the desires of those in the community. So, of course, local communities all seek pretty much the same three needs. What came back is we want a place to belong. We want a place where we can find improvement of ourselves. And thirdly, we want it to be convenient, right? Our culture is a culture of convenience. I know this to be true because I got irritated when I had to wait more than five minutes at McDonald's the other day. It irritated me. Convenience. We want it to be convenient. So we structure churches around that. It's all about the mission of the church, and you'll hear it. You can see it on their websites. You can see it on the billboards. You can see it in their messaging. Come have a place to belong where we're going to help you become a better dad or a better parent or better at your work. So each week they provide solid ideas of how to help each other improve in these areas. Some of this information is not bad, but it becomes the core message of marriage and parenting, employment, relationships, depression, anxiety, bad habits, and the list goes on. Unfortunately, the gospel ends up becoming assumed often in these contexts. The gospel is, of course, they believe the gospel is true, but it's the beginning point. It's, well, it's what gets you in the door. It's what makes you a Christian. And then, of course, now we're going to help you be a better person. And I would say if you visit any church in Tennessee today, you will probably find one of these pushing you toward either morality, be a better person, don't, it's the don't religion, don't do this. Or you're going to have the other idea, the other side of it is here's our advice of how to make you a better you in the culture. What seems to be lacking in most churches is an awareness of the fallenness of humanity and their desperate need of grace that only comes from the gospel. And our mission here, as we will clarify out through the rest of our time together, is to help bring that into clarity of why we, what is it we do every single thing that we do in every area of our ministry. Now, why do I take time to mention all of the different movements so far? Because it will help when we begin to clarify the mission of our church. We, can, we unconsciously bring our own history into every context in our lives. We don't even think about it. We just do. I think it's funny. I like to... I don't like to watch news. I'll, I'll read it, but the way that people present news annoys me. It's my personal preference. Uh, but I like to watch people watch the news, and I like to hear their commentary on the news, especially during the holidays. I might be somewhat of a contrarian, so I might just push back, even though I don't believe in it, because it might be fun. Uh, but in that, what you hear is people bringing in their history, how it is that they have been raised or how they came to their conclusions. is the history behind what they believe. So when you hear someone make a comment about the president of the United States, no matter what president it is, you can pretty much hear where their history comes from. That's not bad. It's just an observation. 
Well, this happens in church as well, when someone walks into a church. Depending on how we have participated in churches in the past will influence the way we engage in our current context. Everyone has a mission that they think should be accomplished in a church. So it is what every visitor judges when they walk in every time they walk into these school doors. They have a mission in their mind. Now, even if they're an unbeliever, which we have had people walk in here in a context where they've never been in a church before, the culture has told them what to think of church. No one walks in here with a blank mind experiencing something they never even thought existed. We all have a history, and in that history, we have formulated, this is what the church should be about. So the question for them is, is the church accomplishing the mission I want to see in this place? And they will determine whether they'll stay or leave based upon that answer. This church is not accomplishing my mission. Now, that is not how they word it, but it is what's happening in the back of their mind. Because of the context we find ourselves here in the middle of Tennessee, we have the hard work of helping people to see that the mission that they think the church should have may not actually be the mission that the Bible presents for us, as we will see this morning. Now, the attitude I pray all of us will, ha- will always have is not that we are right and they are wrong. That's where most discussions end. Because only... Because that only causes people to take sides when really, if you think about it, if someone is preaching the gospel, we're on the same side. We're not on opposing sides. It is not us against them. The attitude I pray we have is one of patience and grace. No one in this room came to the understanding of the gospel on their own. No one did. And no one ever has. It has been granted, as we've already learned from our confession, we've learned from our songs, we've learned from our prayer. It's been granted to us by a work of something that's outside of ourselves, and that is the power of the Spirit. So we marvel that God would love us unconditionally. That should be our posture. It's not to make sure that everyone agrees with us. It is definitely not the mission of our church. Now we are to take this attitude and begin to share it with others not being judgmental, which is very hard to do. Um, I love Christians. They're my family. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ, but they can be the meanest people in the world. They become immediately self-righteous, and that is not the kind of patience that we want to show. Now, unfortunately, our dear brother who was leading worship this morning, Anthony Brooks, is a police officer, and that's not why that's unfortunate. But unfortunately, he had the misfortune of dealing with someone on the streets of Nashville recently that did not hold this attitude. He calls himself a street preacher. And of course, uh, Anthony had to uh, address this. And I will tell you right now, I have, I have nothing wrong with someone who desires to walk the streets of the city and preach the gospel to those who are willing to listen. If you think about it, in a way, we all walk the streets of our lives looking for opportunities to share the grace that we have received. So but this man, unfortunately, was not preaching grace. He was preaching pure law. His message was pure moralism. I was sent to video and I watched, unfortunately, this agonizing 40-minute video. And his message purely was on the streets of Nashville. People need to stop drinking. 
stop cussing, and repent and follow Jesus. His mission was to change people's moral behavior and lead them away from a life of sin into a life of obedience to Christ. Now, I mention this because when this man was confronted by the police, he clearly wasn't there to share a message of hope, but wanted to prove a point that he was right. And the dialogue that ended up happening is that the police simply asked him, you can speak and you can share this message. You have freedom of speech. And if you want to share the gospel, you can do that. We're just asking you to not be so loud with your amplification. He had a speaker system there that was pretty loud. I mean, you could hear it from a couple blocks over. And of course, he publicly argued for several minutes, trying to prove his point, and was very harsh and misrepresentative in this video. But it dawned on me that what can end up happening is that if we become confident in what we believe, we can also become, become combative when we don't need to be combative. There's no reason to be combative. I think this is the attitude I believe the scriptures is calling us to. It is true there are churches who might have lost their mission. And there are many churches around here who do very bizarre things that I personally would feel uncomfortable with. But it is not the job of this church or this pastor to use our ministry as a bullhorn to bully these people back in line. We are not a discernment ministry where you come every week and I'm going to make sure I point you away from all of the bad things that are out there. Of course, there's a lot of things that are bad out there, and there are times that Scripture does point us away from them. Actually, I see many of these churches as our mission field. Those who are confused and hurting do not need to be yelled at. They need to be cared for. Many of you have come from other churches by moving into the area or have been hurt by your church. I know at times we can come across as if we have it right and everyone has it wrong. And I pray that this attitude would begin to change. The moment we allow that attitude to come into our church, we are no longer keeping the message of the gospel central. And here's why. What does the gospel tell us? I've already mentioned it a couple of times, but I think I need to clarify because it'll help us in our mission. The number one radiating mission of the gospel is to help you hear that when you hear gospel, you hear good news. The problem is you can't accept good news if you don't understand what the gospel is for. It's like me walking up to you and saying, listen, Jared, I've got the cure for your cancer. And you're going to look at me bug-eyed go, I have cancer? <laughs> really? I mean, I hope you don't have cancer. But I have cancer? And when sometimes when people hear the gospel, to them it just sounds like, yeah, that's like Christmas, right? It's good news. No, the good news is only good the moment that you understand that you need it. And so the, the message of the gospel comes into a place where those who stand there understanding there is nothing that God would ever accept of them. When Paul says in Romans, there is none righteous, not even one, to clarify, just in case someone say, but, he says, no, there's no, there's no one that God would look at and say, good person. The Bible, as a matter of fact, says that God looks down on humanity and says, all are condemned and judged. Their heart is what it condemns them. And of course, their actions compound it. Because of this, there is, there is the right of God to stand and be righteously judging those. This is why the messaging of our church, when you come into the doors, or if you look at our website, or you look at our bulletins, or you look at the cards, it says where everyone is in equal need of grace. 
The gospel is not necessary if you do not think that you need it. And the gospel also gets confused when you think there's a pecking order. Well, then there's, there's the real bad people. Those are the people who are on the streets today, and they're doing drugs, and then there's the murderers, and the prostitutes. And then there's, you know, the, 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 the people who speed, you know, they'll maybe broke us. And then there's me, like I don't speed, and I don't do drugs, and I'm not cheated. Therefore, God accepts me. And Paul says, there is no one in Galatians. He says, there's no one who kept the law and was more righteous than me. No one that I know of. And I would, I would believe Paul. I, I mean, he was a pretty dedicated man. And he says, all of my righteousness, all of my good works, it just needed to be burned because they were just a pile of dung is the word he uses. So as we think of good news, the good news is this holiday we're celebrating, which is the birth of Christ, the whole Bible is pointing us to that moment of when the Messiah would come and fix the unrighteousness of humanity. All of Genesis, all the way through till you begin in Matthew, is one long story saying, Humanity has fallen. Humanity has tried for thousands of years. God has given them the law. If you want to prove to God, you can do this. Here's the law. And of course, we fail the law because the first commandment in the law is to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you've never done that one day of your life. So forget about the rest of the law. You can't keep one. And because of that, you actually do deserve a very harsh punishment which God has designed. So how can you stand out on a street and yell and scream at people if you yourself are on the equal playing field as the person that you're talking to? You know, it's the whole pot kettle thing, right? I always love it when my children, uh, I don't uh, have one in here, so sorry, Titus. I always love it when my children come and tattle on each other. Because I always want to say, and oh, you spoke with grace and kindness and you were perfectly nice when they came to you, right? You were as if Jesus would be. Well, no. So why are you tattling? You two are guilty. You're both guilty. So how about I punish you both? No. Okay, then I'm not punishing either of you. Go away and be nice. But we have that tendency. It's part of our nature. If we do not keep the purpose of the message, which is humanity is desperately wicked and cannot fix it. The Dark Ages told you you could fix it. The revivalist, uh, so they told you you could fix it by obeying the ordinances of the church. Revivalism told you you could fix it by morality, being morally good, God would accept you. And then, of course, we have the self-improvement. God will help those who help themselves, so be, be good at helping yourself. No one can gain righteousness. The moment you lose the necessity of the message, you lose the message in general. So as long as we keep the gospel at the center of the message of the church, we will always stay on mission. So let's clarify, what is the mission of the church? And we're going to let the greatest, in my, in my opinion, the greatest church planner in the New Testament tell us what it is. And he tells multiple churches, this is what you are to focus on. This is your mission. This is what governs you. Now there's other parts of it, but if this isn't the center of your mission, then you have lost it. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as Curtis read for us this morning. We're not going to read all of it. We're just going to read a few verses. Start in verse 2. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. 
For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the entire person of Christ, all that exists, and you cannot remove the person of Christ from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus. So everything up to his birth, and then he says, and him crucified. And everything that comes after. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and in my speech. And my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrative the power of the spirit of the power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There's a reason why the elders of this church are relentless about preaching the gospel in every context that we can, because we believe, as Paul says, the gospel is, there's only one thing in the Bible that says encapsulates the very power of God, and it says the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So Paul says, I don't want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men. Think about this for a moment in the movements of the church in history. Men stand up and give you their wisdom. This is my thoughts of how you can be better. And they give you a list of what you must do. And nothing in that list says, trust Jesus Christ and him alone as your right standing before the Father. Their list is all about either moral improvement or what you should not do or tips for a happy life. I can understand the enticement there. We're all enticed to do that. But this is why it is so important that we stay grounded in the word of God and we trust the word of God. And Paul says, I speak to you and I've made the decision that I don't want any, I don't want to make anything else known to you. That is not to say that there are not helpful. I read an incredible book this week called Ordinary. It had in some fascinating ways and, and helpful ideas to help me with communication and leadership and even how to parent. Great wisdom, super helpful. But it's not been guaranteed to me to accomplish what God said he would accomplish in my life that only the gospel can accomplish. That is the wisdom of men. You know, we need the wisdom of men in some areas like medical and mechanics and science. (laughs) Those are helpful. But that will not dictate the mission of the church. And unfortunately, we have used the wisdom of men and we've used science and we've been intimidated by science to change the words of God and trusting in words and wisdom of men instead of in the gospel. So Paul said, trust in the message of the gospel. Now, in Corinthians, just to give you context, the Corinthians have completely lost. The church in Corinth have completely lost their way. They were promoting promiscuity. They had also created a hierarchy of who was the most spiritual among those in the church. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it was a total mess. And so he's walking into a church that is completely disarray and says, listen, the only way I'm going to get you back on track is to fix your mission. And your mission has been lost because it's no longer Christ and him crucified. Paul also clarified, if you turn with me to Galatians Paul chapter 3, Paul also clarified his mission in a second, in a second church. Now in this Church, it's a different context than the Corinthians. And the Galatians were adding to the gospel. So they had the foundation right. But then they were saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but there's other things that you must do. So they weren't dealing with promiscuity or in issues of morality. They had created what's called legalism. You do this requirement and God will approve of your life and accept you. 
Well, this is what he says to them. Oh, foolish Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This would be very much in the revivalistic standpoint of morality. They require these actions of do's and don'ts in order to be accepted by God. And we will not accept you nor your profession of faith if you do not act in this way. And Paul says, someone not only just led you astray, they bewitched you. It's the same as witchcraft. It's the, the damaging sense of it. So you have two churches where Paul has to re focus their mission. They have lost it. What it is that they are about. They are not about moral improvement. They're not about, uh, well, the Corinthian church was kind of like live and let live. Whatever it is you want to do, we are all free in the gospel. And then there's one last chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. There's a clarity that's given at the end of it. You have Jews who too are wanting to go back to the law. They want to trust in obedience instead of faith, faith in Christ alone. And this is what the author says in therefore, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what he means by that is that we have so many evidences throughout the Old Testament that God saved sinners by faith alone. That's what he means. These are the witnesses. They will testify to the fact that if you trust in Christ and not the law, he'll save you. Let us lay aside every weight and sin. Weight, that means things that are not required by the Bible to be accepted before God. And sin, that which is very clearly a sin against God or a violation against God. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here is the key. Here's the mission. You get rid of all the clutter. You get rid of all the sin. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our what? Our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just as Paul said, I want to make nothing known among you except for Christ and him crucified. The author of Hebrews also says we are to look to Jesus, specifically the one who gave us our faith in his death on the cross and his resurrection. So the mission of our church is to see everyone in an equal need of grace. And faithfully preach the gospel because it is the power of God into salvation. The moment this church loses that mission where we become about family, which is not a bad thing. There's a lot of great helpful ministries out there. Or we become about the homeless or we become about uh, helping uh, uh, the, the divorced or whatever else that you want to put out there. Those who are being trafficked. Orphans. All of these are great missions, but they come from the outflow of our center, which is always the gospel. So how does this affect us as a church? How is it that we go from week in and week out understanding that the message of Jesus Christ, our need as sinners for Christ to come be a part of our life, how does that affect us? Well, it'll affect us in what happens here at this moment in preaching. It affects us in the way what happens there and the children's ministry, what happens in our men's and women's Bible study. If you've paid attention, when we get together, we dig into God's word. We pull out the truths of God's word. And what happens is it becomes a mirror. You see just how dirty and filthy you are. You know what ends up happening in most contexts is we look at each other. And if I look at you, I'm like, yeah, you're definitely uglier than me. I'm good. You're definitely worse than I am. I'm good. What the scripture does is it opens it up and shows you a picture of Christ. And then next to Christ shows you a mirror. 
and you go, oh man, now you see the need. And men's and women's Bible studies and children's ministry and everything is centered around how can we expose our hearts to the need. If you listen to our music, what you will not hear in our music is your need for improvement. You will also not hear what it is that you are promising to do for God because your promises mean nothing to God. You want to know why? You've never obeyed him and you've never kept the promise fully in your life when it comes to God. How many of you have said this right here? Lord, if you help me with this, I'll never do that again. And then a one week later, one year later, two years later, 10 years later, you did it. Can God, do you really want to come in here and tell God how faithful you're going to be to him? He knows your heart. He knows that it's not true. So no, we don't want to sing songs about what we're going to do for God. We want to sing songs about what God has done for us to remind us that God does not accept us on the basis of our performance, but he accepts us on the basis because of Christ has performed perfectly. And then any ministry that flows out from here. And I want there to be ministries to the needy and the poor. As a matter of fact, Paul commissions the church to help the widows and to help the orphans and to help the poor. But it comes from the mission of the gospel. It does not become the mission of the church. And I would say, how does this affect our day-to-day lives? Well, if you understand the mission of the church and you're tightly connected to it, then every way that you approach your Bible studies, the way in which you approach home fellowship groups or outreach, all is. We want to lead people to rest in Christ. We are not leading people to be morally improved. I don't get outraged at news when I see, I mean, there's bad stuff that happens. And I mean, it's horrible. We were watching the local news in Nixon, Missouri. And I was like, just in that weekend, there was a murder, a stabbing. Um, it was, it was a, I had to fall asleep. It was too much. But I don't judge those people. <laughs> Who am I to judge? I have thought everything they've done. And Jesus says, if you thought it, you've committed it. So I have no reason to judge, but I have something that they don't have. It's clear that they don't have it because if they had it, they probably wouldn't be pursuing what it is that they're pursuing. So it is the responsibility of our church to feel the weight of our mission. The goal of this church is not for you to come here and feel good about yourself or come here and be like, okay, I got some good, you know, Shot in the arm, and now I'm going to go home and do my life. The goal of this church is for you to be transformed by the message of the gospel into the image of Jesus Christ, and then take that transformation out so that others may find rest. When we lose sight of the priority, our own ambitions is what will end up guiding us. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I struggle with my own ambitions of wanting this and wanting that. All of you do. Some of you want a healthy family. You want a godly family, or you want a better career. It's, it's, it's weight. It's your looks. It's, there's entertainment, fame. Everybody has something. You can see it. We can all see it in each other. If we're honest, we look at each other's Instagram. If we look at each other in how we dress, we, we all have these things that we struggle with. This is a no judgment zone here. I'm not judging you. Your pastor is on the same page. I struggle. This is why it says, consider how to come together and to build one another up into love and good works. Why? Because as the song says, we so easily walk away. We stray away. So what is it that is at stake for our church if we aren't so mindful of what it is that we are trying to accomplish? Well, 
We have many people who will continue their lives and probably until they die and they will never have the joy of assurance. How many of you, don't raise your hand, this is a metaphorical question, but how many of you struggled with assurance your entire Christian life? It's like you can't go to sleep at night without wondering if God takes me home or if I die tomorrow, I don't actually know if God is happy with me. And it's, 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 it's agonizing to wonder. It's like to think after you get married, does she really love me? Does he really love me? I, to, to imagine living that way in marriage is horrible. Well, this is how people live. They never really know if God is good with them. And our church has the mission to say, he is good with you if you accept his message. He is good with you. But it's never based upon you. There are also people who live their entire life and what ends up being conjured up in them is this mean spirit. You ever just meet somebody and they're just mean? But they justify uh, the gospel or they justify church as the reason why they're mean. Oh man, America's just going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, man, if we could just get a good president in there and blah, 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 and they just blame the church for their, I'm like, you're a mean person. You are, you're a mean person. But I don't judge them because I know why they're mean. Somebody convince them that's the right way to think. They're in bondage. There are people in bondage all over our city. And there's also those who just live in constant guilt and shame. They feel like they'll never measure up. They'll never measure up. They'll never be good enough. I don't, if you've ever been in a context where you just don't ever feel that you can do enough, it is, it is bondage. But our church can come into this culture and bring assurance to those who truly trust in Christ to move somebody from anger to hope, from a mean spirit to a gentle spirit. And for someone who just lives in that constant cloud of shame, say you have nothing to be ashamed of because God never accepts you based on what you have and have not done. And they can start to live in joy. So I'm very passionate about the mission of our church because I've seen in your lives and I've seen in my lives that scripture is worthy to be trusted. That if we keep the focus of the church, what God intended the focus of the church to be, which is administering the gospel in every context possible and clarifying the gospel and believing in the gospel and encouraging each other in the gospel, if we keep that our mission, we truly can not only see people come to faith, believe the gospel, but while they rest in a horrible, wicked, dirty, painful world, they can have real light and real hope. And so as we create new ministries and we start Sunday school classes and we have men's retreats and women's retreats and we have outreach opportunities, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have opportunities to reach out into our community and, and get involved in our community. We have to remember in the back of our mind, you possess something that most people don't even know exist, and they are probably even Christians if they live in Spring Hill. You hold something that is worth more than if you could give them all the money they could ever desire. The moment we forget that we possess that, we will not have boldness to open our mouths and share it with people. The moment you're convinced, I have something that the world needs. The moment we hold that, then we'll figure out ways to overcome some of our personality quirkiness and some of our fear 
And it's not going to all be the same. I'm not expecting you to get a bullhorn and go out in the streets of Stringhill and preach the gospel. But I know that you'll probably start praying for people in ways that you probably haven't before. You'll maybe think of ways that work for your context and your personality to somehow start a conversation or an invitation or a text or an email or leave a flyer. You'll figure out something. I would rather you figure it out than for me to pressure you because that's just guilt and shame. Speaking of, in, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to actually offer uh, an evangelism class. And the purpose of the class is not to necessarily teach you how to sit down and share the gospel one-on-one, but help you generate ideas that the traditional ways in which we have engaged the culture may not be the only way we engage our culture. Somehow we thought that only door knocking and walking up to somebody and saying, if you die today, are you sure 100% you're going to go to heaven or hell? Oh, I actually was just hoping to order some fries. You know, it's kind of like, so how is it we can engage our culture and do it from the standpoint of love and patience and kindness, right? We're trying to lead them to something that is going to completely wreck their life. You, you got to do that with some patience. <laughs> you got to do it with some kindness. So we'll do that in a couple of weeks. Men, let's get ready for communion. As a church, we went to every week weekly communion because we believe that the center of our ministry is the gospel. And what greater way to demonstrate that than to every week be refreshed, be renewed, and trust in the means by which God has given us in his table. And so this is a sad Sunday for me because my dear friend Jeff will be sharing communion, the gospel of communion for the last time this year. And so it's sad and it's also wonderful. But for those of you that are visiting, and just to remind all of us, we do not take this commission that Christ has given us, the bread and the wine. We do not take this to earn favor with God. We also do not take it because we have been good this week. Some people have always been told that do not take this in an unworthy manner, meaning that if you have sin in your life, you should not take it. Well, my dear friend, there is no one sitting nor standing that is sinless at this moment. That they can look at their life and say, yeah, I've done pretty good this week. Because if you think you've done good this week, please come have coffee with me. I will show you very quickly that you are a very bad person. And so am I. We take this because it reminds us that it, our salvation comes to us from the outside in, not from the inside out. We receive the body. We receive the blood. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you are a Christian, you're not sure that you have been right with God by faith alone, then we don't want you to be confused. Please uh, do not participate. Uh, this is for those who have been baptized and are in common union with the body of Christ. We encourage you, please, to participate. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you have been so kind and generous to allow our church to have the clarity that we do. We do not boast. We have no pride. In the moment we do have pride, we've now then forgot the gospel. So that we come and we celebrate how gracious you have been to open our eyes to the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to strengthen our faith now as we participate in the table. In Jesus' name, amen.